As you're being seated, grab your Bible and open it to the book of Isaiah, find chapter 1. And that will not be the last time you hear me tell you open your Bible to Isaiah. As a matter of fact, we're going to spend about the next 12 weeks in the book of Isaiah. How many of you um, in the last month have actually read all 66 chapters of Isaiah? About a month ago, if you are reading through the Bible in the last 100 days of 2020, you would have read this. And yet, if you're like me, when you got around chapter 35, you're like, how long is this thing? This is kind of hard to understand. There's a lot of poetic language there. It's not like reading the, the parables or some teaching narrative of Jesus. This is, a, this is a prophecy, and there's a lot of imagery in all of those, those things. It's a different genre of reading, and yet it's so critical to write where we are living. Um, I don't know about you. I had a rough week. Anybody have a rough week? I had, like, it's one of the worst weeks in a long time. Back went out in the gym, um, basement flooded, um, and then last night, Andrew and I went out for a date, came out of the restaurant, car wouldn't start. It was just a bad week. But the last 35 minutes of my week was the best 35 minutes of my week. I am so grateful for the encouragement just packed into the lyrics of those songs. And uh, I got to tell you, during this season, I wake up every Sunday morning and wondering if I'm going to be the only one at church. Because um, it's risky to go to church. Have you heard this? It's risky to be in a group of more than one. And, um, and yet, uh, the people of God realize there's something worth the risk. Uh, and we have no fear because we believe in one who's conquered death. And so, thank you for risking your life to come to church this morning. I'm also really grateful for people in our healthcare community. You've heard the numbers. And uh, we're praying for those. I've got two members of my own family that are in the healthcare community. And... The, the risk is real, and yet um, we believe uh, in a God who is supreme, and He does not allow one molecule to move one millimeter without His sovereign power. So we trust in those truths. Now, during 2020 and this very contentious political season that we are still in seemingly, um, if you've been paying attention, you should be asking some questions. Um, one of those questions might be, do you think America might be under the judgment of God? Anybody have a thought that that might be happening? I mean, plagues and uh, contentious things going on and division and strife and all of those different things. Um, you know, we read about a lot of those things in the Bible. And that's the reason why I've asked you to open up to the book of Isaiah. I want to read to you the first verse of the first chapter of Isaiah. This is what it says. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, if we were to translate that into contemporary language, like, make that really applicable for me, Trent, what does that mean? It, you might interpret it this way. The sermons of Pastor Trent, the son of Tommy, which he saw concerning America and Washington, D.C. in the days of Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump, presidents of the United States of America. 
Now, that's obviously not the interpretation. Don't go out of here and say, Trent just said that. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying in order to appreciate the context into which the prophet Isaiah wrote, you have to understand what was going on. This was about 2,700 years ago, 700 years before Christ, and God raised up a prophet. Now, a prophet's job was to listen to the message of God and then accurately and faithfully and courageously deliver said message to God's people. And the 66 chapters of Isaiah is what we have. Isaiah would have been the political commentator of his day. And yet, unlike so many of the political commentators that you and I listen to, everything Isaiah said was 100% accurate and 100% authoritative. And by the way, let me just say something as your pastor. I am carrying a burden for our church. I'm carrying a burden for some of you that are so attached to political commentary that it is hard for you to distinguish between political commentary and absolute authoritative revealed truth from God. And if, if the truth was known, some of us have our favorite political commentators, and yet our favorite political commentators are very good at critiquing the political opponent and very bad at pointing out any type of issue with our own um, particular loyalty. And so I want so many of you to understand what is going on through the lens of a biblical worldview. And the only way you can do that is to get your eyes on the written word of God. And I feel like the underdog every week because I get about 40 minutes, and if I'm on bad behavior, about 50 minutes. And you guys, some of you spend three hours a day listening to that stuff. And, and it's like, no wonder it has so much impact on your life. And if you could see through the lens of Scripture what is going on, not only would you be less anxious, you would actually be hopeful that nothing can thwart the providence and the sovereignty of God. History is moving along exactly as God has intended it. And yet Isaiah tells us how God works and what his message is to a sinful nation. You can sum it up in three words. The entire book of Isaiah can be summed up in these words. Jesus is king. That is the message of God to a sinful nation. Now, in order to understand Isaiah, you have to understand these three words. And let me just tell you very quickly how to read through these things. We're going to look at all three of these here today. First of all, let me just warn you, we're going to look at the first five chapters of Isaiah. We're going to have to skim through it. We'll surf over the top. We're going to go back and forth so that we're not here all day. But the first five chapters of Isaiah helps us understand the entire book. And it all revolves around this pattern. There's one pattern. It's a threefold pattern. It repeats seven times in the book of Isaiah. And it's all about God's response to sin, God's threats of judgment, and God's hope for those who will repent and believe. Okay? So we're going to dive into that here in a minute. But understand this. God is using Isaiah 
to communicate to a sinful nation. Again, understand the context. Um, if you've read the Bible, one of the reasons I've had you reading the Bible so quickly is because I wanted you to understand the message of Isaiah. You know, back in Genesis chapter 12, God chose one man who would produce a family. That family was going to become a great nation, Abraham. And the promise in Genesis 12 was this one nation which became what we call Israel. A little side note here, Isaiah uses a lot of different synonyms for the nation of Israel. He calls it the house of Judah. He calls it Jerusalem, which would have been the capital in the southern kingdom. He calls it Zion. So all of those are simply referring to this family of Abraham that's now grown into this na great nation. You know, they occupied the promised land, which is where they're living. And you know, the unfolding history, the the. They raised up kings. First king didn't go so great. Second king was David. David had a son. His name was Solomon. David had two sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, which divided the kingdom north and south. Or am I going too quickly for you? And this is the history of the Old Testament, right? And if this is the reason you've been reading it. And then here we come into the context of Isaiah. The superpower pagan nation at the time was Assyria. Assyria had surrounded the northern kingdom and was about to invade during Isaiah's ministry. Assyria did invade, northern kingdom falls. And what we are reading is Isaiah preaching to the southern kingdom, essentially saying, if you don't repent, you're next. And we know what happened. They didn't repent and the southern kingdom fell as well. And that's why we say that this book is a wonderful example to learn how God works with sinful nations. Let me also say this. It is dangerous for us to insert ourselves into the pages of Scripture. Isaiah was a real man speaking to four very real kings in a very real context about a very real external enemy. When we read these things, we don't need to like use some like Bible decoder to say, well, right there it's talking about America and there's President Trump and you know there's the church and, and here's the Messiah and there's the Antichrist. We got to be very careful about those things because this author had a message for a specific people group, which was not America. Um, I don't know about you, but in my lifetime, I have seen the transformation of the worldview, which was predominantly a biblical worldview in America, into one that is no longer a biblical worldview. Um, some people in the past have, have said, you know, America is a Christian nation. It depends on kind of how you're using that. We shouldn't say that America is a Christian nation. There are no Christian nations. There are only Christian people. Now, when the majority of the people in the nation are Christians, then you could say, well, America probably has some, some Christian worldview. Well, in my lifetime, that is no longer true. We have moved in my lifetime from a nation that embraced a biblical worldview to a nation that tolerated a biblical worldview to now in 2020 to a nation that actually hates the biblical worldview and people like you who believe it. Um, how many of you ever played on an organized sports team? Raise your hand. I know it was debatable, third string maybe, but you know, you made it out on the floor at some point. Do you remember when you had a home game? Do you remember how exciting 
a home game was. You had the prep pep rally in the afternoon. All the cheerleaders were cheering you on. My particular football team, I played football. You could just tell by looking, I know. But I played football all the way through high school. And my team, uh, my senior year, um, we were bad. We were really bad. We were 0-7, seven games into the season. And yet the cheerleaders kept showing up and they kept cheering us on. And they kept believing that someday, possibly, through no fault of our own, we might win a game. Right? I mean, the momentum was there, no matter how bad you are. And the, the crowds would cheer, and, and it would even somehow impact the referees that, you know, might call a call in your favor and all that, because you, you had home field advantage. Well, for hundreds of years, Christians had home field advantage in America. Newsflash, we are now the visiting team. And nobody's cheering us on. Nobody's rooting for us. We like to think, man, if we could just get a president who'd be a cheerleader for us, we could just get a congress to cheer for us, if we could just get the neighbors in around the church to cheer for us, boy, we really love you guys showing up, turning that music on Sunday morning, and we just, it just gets us out of bed. That's not what, we're getting them out of bed, but they're not excited about it. So anyway, we're not experiencing the home field advantage that we once had. We are now in the minority, what the Bible calls a remnant, and we're going to read about it right here. Now, the great thing about Isaiah is he was an equal opportunity preacher. He didn't care which political administration was in charge, whether it was Uzziah or Jotham or Ahaz or Hezekiah. He shot straight. He criticized the sin. He called it out, and it's our job within a sinful nation to do the same, no matter where your political loyalties lie. To call sin, sin. And we're going to see that Isaiah did that. And to live with the understanding that nations that reject a biblical worldview invite the judgment of God. And yet, the message of Isaiah is this. Judgment is not final. God uses judgment to bring hope. The message of Isaiah is hope through judgment. So we're going to see this. It's all summed up in the first five chapters. We're going, to, we're going to surf around a little bit here. So hang with me. It's a little complicated. My job is to make it simple. Here's the first thing I want you to see. God's case against a sinful nation. Let's continue to read in chapter 1, verse 2. Isaiah says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. Isaiah wants you to learn very quickly at the beginning of his book. These are not my words. This is not my opinion. This is the self-disclosure of God. I've been with him. He has spoken. I didn't write the news. I'm just the messenger boy. I'm just delivering the paper. And so God calls these two witnesses. Imagine a courtroom scene. And God is the, the, the lawyer, and he calls these two witnesses to testify against this sinful nation. The two witnesses are listed there in, in verse 2, the earth and the heavens. Isaiah summons the created order, which is moving perfectly in obedience to the word of God, to testify against a sinful nation that is disobedient to the word of God. Verse 2 goes on to say, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. 
We don't like the word judgment. We don't like to think of God as an angry judge. And right at the beginning of this prophecy, Isaiah presents not God as an angry judge, but a grieved parent whose heart is broken for his children who have turned away from him, are straying into danger. God's heart is broken because his children are living in opposition to him. Verse 3, an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Essentially what Isaiah is saying is, the animal kingdom knows better than human beings. Think about it. The earth, the heavens... Ox and donkeys do exactly what God created them to do. The only creation in the universe that dares to defy the sovereign rule of God is who? Point to them. If you point it to your husband, that's not the idea. This is not not marriage counseling time. It's like, it's all of us. We have this heart which wants to be sovereign. And it creates a group of people, a sinful nation. It goes on, verse 4. He says, ah, sinful nation. See that word ah there? That's not the kind of ah that you express when you get in a bubble bath. This is the kind of ah you express when you live in Oklahoma and the tornado sirens are blaring and you see the wind blowing. Ah sinful nation. There's a lot of adjectives that he could have put in there before the word nation. He could have said, ah, wealthy nation, because at this time, Israel was incredibly prosperous. He could have said, ah, powerful nation. They had military might, and they had had natural resources that they could use to defend themselves. He could have said, ah, blessed nation. They had the word of God. They had the favor of God. They had the potential for being blessed by God. And yet they rejected all of that potential. And the only accurate descriptor of the nation at this time could be the word sinful. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And the worst part is, they don't know it. They need a prophet to come and rattle their cage. They are living with a false sense of security because everything seems to be going so well. Skip down here to verse 9. If the Lord of hosts, the word host there means armies. You can think of angel armies. The Lord has messengers and warriors at his disposal to get his will done. He says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Remember the story in Genesis 18 of Sodom and Gomorrah? Deep, rebellious, sexual, deviant sin. God brings hail and brimstone upon them, completely annihilated them, leaving no survivors. And yet, verse 9 says... As an act of mercy, God has withheld 
a minority, a remnant, a small group of people who were still faithful to the Lord. Isaiah was one of them. One of the great things about the unfolding story of the Bible is we know that those few, whatever's, whatever number that represents here in the book of Isaiah, the few was eventually reduced smaller, 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 smaller to one. And do you know who that one was? His name was Jesus. And he was the one who became the faithful servant king of Israel. As a matter of fact, just a little side note, I wish I had time to dive into all this, but we just spent eight weeks in John 15. Did your Bible open to John 15 when I told you to open it earlier? We spent, remember, what's the one word about all that? Remember the word? What's the word? Abide. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Do you remember how he announced that whole thing? He said, I am the true vine. You are the branches. Abide in me that you would bear much fruit. Do you know that John 15 is simply a sermon that Jesus preached from Isaiah chapter 5. Matter of fact, just flip over to it real quick. I want your eyes on the page. Uh, Chapter 5, I don't have time to dive into it all, but I want you to see it here. It's all connected. Your Bible is interwoven. It says in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of of Israel. He goes on to, in the earlier part, to describe about how this vineyard that had been planted by God, meant to produce life, meant to produce sweetness, was now producing bitter fruit. And the fences had fallen down, and God is allowing people to come in and just destroy the vineyard because they were producing bitter bitter fruit. And in in John 15, Jesus stepped forward and said, remember that Isaiah 5 passage where God called you the vineyard? News announcement. I am the new vineyard. I am the true vine. And as long as you, remnant, are attached to me as a branch, you can produce sweet, beautiful, life-giving fruit. Jesus is the one true survivor who would redeem This broken, sinful nation. And by the way, he's the only redeemer for any nation that is sinful and has rejected the Lord. So this is God's case against a sinful nation. What was his case? Three things. First of all, worthless worship occurring within this sinful nation. Look in verse 10. Back to chapter 1. You back in chapter 1? Keep Stay with me here. Chapter 1, look at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's mocking them now, calling them guilty of the sin of Sodom. He says, give ear to the teaching of our God. I trust that you'll do that today. You people of Gomorrah, verse 11, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Verse 12, when you come and appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Really? You don't want my money? You don't want my songs? You You don't want my acts of service? No, not interested 
He says, incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. They don't go together. You can't come and pretend you're a humble people there to worship and ascribe glory to God and at the same time be polluted with sin. Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands. You ever do that in worship? Just do that? Think God's pleased with that? Depends. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. Wait, God, I thought you wanted us to be a praying people. Even when you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. God calls them out for their vain worship. Oh, they still come to the place of worship. They still bring all their offerings and sacrifices. Still sing their songs, pray their prayers, ask for forgiveness. And God says, I hate it all. Why? Because their worship was insincere. Their focus was more ceremonial than from the heart. They were trying to manipulate God into blessing them rather than to surrender to whatever his will and ways was. They were hypocritical rather than having a transformational moment in the presence of Jesus where they would leave cleansed and holy, ready to live out the covenant relationship that they were in. That wasn't their only problem. It wasn't just that they had broken their covenant with God. They were failing in their responsibility to one another. Social injustice was the next problem. It goes on in verse 21. Skip down a little bit there in chapter 1. He describes their relational sin with one another. They were exploiting the most vulnerable. Verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. Strong language describes how God saw their sin as immorality and they were giving their love to other gods. They were cheating on God. Describes them as a whore. And then he says, she who was, past tense, full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Not valuing the sanctity of life, From the oldest to the youngest. Verse 22. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes. Now he's talking about their leaders. Their political leaders. Your princes are rebels. And companion of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe. And runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. And the widow's cause they do the widow's cause does not come to them. So they would ignore those who were most vulnerable in their society, those who were disadvantaged. It's a special word to men. Men, listen up. Men who need to take responsibility to be fathers and men who need to take responsibilities for their widowed mothers. And yet, they were ignoring those needs This is not the kind of social injustice that's politicized in our culture. This was essentially ignoring the covenant that they had entered into with God, the covenant expressed in ten commandments. Have you heard of these? First four representing our relationship with the Lord, love the Lord with 
all of your heart. Have no other gods before me. Don't take the Lord God's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Those are the first four. That's, that's the problem here. They had worthless worship. And then the last six of the Ten Commandments all had, thou shalt not murder. He calls them murderers, which sums up the others. Not lying, not committing adultery, not coveting your neighbor's wife. All of those are wrapped up. They've broken the covenant. And they had done all of that because they were despising the word of the Lord. A society that fails to love God will fail to love one another and be marked by social injustice, lacking both justice and righteousness. And because they had despised the word of the Lord, all of this was happening. Very quick, turn over back to chapter 5. Kind of brackets this whole section here. And look at verse 20. Woe to those, by the way, this is, the, this is one of six woes that's listed in chapter 5. We don't have time to look at all of them. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. What's he describing? He's describing a culture that has completely reversed the moral code. And again, in my lifetime, I've seen this happen. What once was honored as right and good has now been targeted as hateful and wrong and evil. Look at verse 24. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people and He stretched out His hand against them and struck them. Notice, it wasn't just that they had rejected the word of the Lord. They despised the word of the Lord. Our biggest problem is not that we are lawbreakers. Our biggest problem is that we are law haters. Something in our heart doesn't want to be told what to do. And so we push back. Anything that would put boundaries on our behavior and anything that would critique our attitudes and our lifestyles, it's the case against a sinful nation. Secondly, let's look at God's judgment on a sinful nation. It shifts a bit here. Chapter 2, let's begin reading in verse 11. The haughty looks of man. The word haughty means lofty. It means elevated. It means exalted. The haughty looks of a man shall be brought low. This is a promise from Scripture. The haughty looks of a man shall shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Do you want to invite the judgment of God on your life, your family, or your nation? Exalt yourself 
in the presence of God. And He will humble you. He does it for individuals. He does it for families. And He does it to nations as well. The fundamental sin from which all other sin flows is pride. Pride is an exalted opinion of myself. Pride is a refusal to acknowledge weakness. Pride is an independent spirit from God. It's a declaration of independence from God. And pride is what causes me to exalt myself to the place of God and convince myself and others I don't need God. It's in the heart of every human soul. And yet when nations put leaders in the place of God, it invites the judgment of God. Leaders that are filled with pride and put themselves in a place where they believe they deserve the praise of man. They believe everyone else should bow down and worship them, unrivaled and unquestioned. They love the praise of men. They destroy anything that threatens their power, anything that threatens to expose their weakness or create vulnerabilities. They demand absolute, unquestioning loyalty, and they annihilate any opponent. It all comes from a heart of pride. And when a nation fails to exalt God as supreme, do you know what it does? It inevitably exalts fallible leaders and puts fallible leaders in the place of God. The result is the idolization of human leaders. We begin to look to presidents or educators or military leaders or religious leaders or marketplace leaders or medical professionals to protect us and provide for us in a way that only God can provide. Right now, what you're watching, the response to COVID so often is looking for a human solution that can only be delivered by a holy God. And so that's why everybody's freaking out, is because we won't look to God. We exalt strong leaders who promise to deliver us from these things, but without dependence on God. The end is inevitable. When the leader eventually fails to do what only God can do, do you know what the people do? They turn on him. They attack him. We, we expected you to provide things that God would provide. You didn't provide them, and so we attack them, and then we move on to the next leader, don't we? This is all what happens in a culture that is a sinful nation. Look at verse 22. What's the remedy for this? Skip down chapter 2, verse 22. God says this, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? He asks a rhetorical question. Why are you trusting in a man who is dependent upon his next breath, and God says he could take it away at any moment. Every leader has an expiration date. Every country has an expiration date. We need to look to God. This week as I was studying this passage, I was reading a commentator by a theologian. His name is Alec Motyer. And this commentary was written in 1993. This is what Alec Motyer said about this passage of Scripture. Uh, 
He says, divine judgment on a society begins to manifest itself in five things. The disappearance of solid leadership, the appearance of immature leaders, a society that becomes divided, the age gap opens up, and an air of despair dominates elections. Published in 1993. Now, is that his opinion? Or do we see that in the scripture? I want you to look with me here in chapter, um, in chapter 3, verse 1. Notice what he says. This is Isaiah speaking for God. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply. How'd you like to get that on the news headlines? God is taking away all your support and all your supply as a nation. And he goes on to show us what else he's going to take away. All support for bread, all support for water. Verse 2, he's going to take away the mighty man, the soldier, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor, the skillful magician, even the entertainers are going to be taken away, and the expert in charms. God's going to take them away. So what's one of the signs of God's judgment? It's the disappearance of solid leadership in all areas of society. Look at verse 4. And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. The second sign is the appearance of immature leaders. He said, I'm going to put in the place of men boys. In the place of strong men of character, I'm going to put a bunch of fifth grade boys. Have you ever been a fifth grade boy? Have you ever met one? Try to avoid them as much as possible? Yeah. Imagine those types of people leading the nation. Just imagine what that would look like. I know you have to imagine this, what it would look like to have a bunch of fifth grade boys running the country. But that's what he says. He goes on. He says, verse 5, And the people will oppress one another. Everyone is fellow and everyone is neighbor. So society becomes divided. Then the second part of verse 5, And the youth will be insolent to the elder. So the younger generation has disdain for the older generation. And, it, and they despise the honorable. So the age gap opens up. And then an air of despair in elections. Look at what he says in verse 6. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak. You shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. I mean, can you imagine? A guy looks at a guy and is like, Man, you're a, you're a snappy dresser. That's a really cool coat. You should be our leader. Because you've got great fashion sense. That, like, that's the most qualifying thing we could find for somebody to lead us. You're an influencer. It says in verse 7, In that day he will speak out saying, I will not be a healer in my house. There is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me the leader of the people. So the people who are strong refuse to lead. And so the people are left with only people who want to lead 
for their own political gain. He says, all this arises from moral and spiritual causes. It's not the result of failures of policy, but speaking and acting against the Lord and provoking Him. Blatant sin is inviting its just reward. Verse 8 in the passage says, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying His glorious presence. How do you move from a self-exalting leader to a humble leader? It's real simple. You have to get in the presence, the glorious presence of the Lord. The only thing it takes for an arrogant, narcissistic leader to be humbled is for him to get in the presence, the glorious presence of the Lord. And God does this. Just one last thing here, and this is the hope. It's the last thing. God's hope for a sinful nation. I told you earlier, Isaiah's message is not judgment or hope. Isaiah's message is hope through judgment. And it's not just the message for ancient Israel, it's the message for us as well. I want you to see it in chapter 2. Are you in chapter 2 now? Chapter 2 says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, verse 2, verse 2 is one of the most hopeful, happy verses in the whole Bible. He's like, about time. Verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Now just think about the context into which Isaiah just said that. He's told them they're going to be judged. He's told them Assyria is about to invade. And yet he looks far in the future, it's prophecy, and says God's kingdom will not fail. Remember those few survivors? Remember the one servant righteous king that we're going to read about more? He is going to become the mountain of the Lord. Mountains were the greatest thing that they could imagine. It was poetic language to help them to understand this is the unmovable, rock-solid truth That from this evil, sinful nation, God is going to redeem and restore and bring a mountain that all the other nations are going to flow into it. It's interesting. It's a mountain, but the nations are going to flow up. Typically, water flows down from a mountain, right? But the nations are are going to be flowing up. That means there's this magnetic attraction to something on the mountain. What would that be? That would be the glorious presence of King Jesus on the mountain. Now listen, again, this is poetic language. The interpreters will debate, like, is this talking about a literal mountain on Jerusalem, in Jerusalem? Listen, did you know that verse 2, even though it says, do you see, it says, in the latter days, this is going to come to pass in the latter days. So our question is like, when's that coming? Is, Is that latter days for us or is it latter days for them? And the answer is, yes. 700 years after he wrote that, Jesus showed up in Bethlehem. Do you know what the first words of Jesus' first sermon was? The kingdom of God is here. He established the kingdom. And the kingdom came, was inaugurated when Jesus showed up. And yet, 
we are awaiting for the day when Jesus will literally come and establish a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new Israel. This is all prophesied there in verse 2. And notice what happens in verse 3. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of our God, the God of Jacob, and he may, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. All of a sudden, everything in their hearts is reversed. They had despised and rejected the word of the Lord, and now something in them is encouraging them to go be taught by King Jesus the ways of the Lord. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations. Wouldn't you love somebody to just do that? Like, no, you're right, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're right. God's going to do that. And it says this, They shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So they're going to turn their spears and their swords, weapons of war, into objects of peace and provision. This is what's coming for the remnant who trust in Jesus, the The people flow into the mountain, and the law of the Lord flows out of the mountain. In other ways, in other words, his kingdom has been established, Jesus is king, and the people come to him surrendering to him in spite of what they faced in the sin around them. How do we make this practical? In conclusion, go all the way back to chapter 1, last verse I'll take you to. Listen. It's pretty obvious for us as a remnant people. I trust you're part of the remnant. If you're not, surrender to King Jesus and you can be a part of this mountain. The fact that we are here today in Granger, Indiana, talking about this, reading this book, is proof that the the law of God is already flowing out of this mountain. King Jesus is teaching his people. He's giving us hearts to to love each other. Come, let's go and be taught. Let's learn to do his ways. But there's a choice that we have to make as well. I want you to notice at the end of chapter 1, verse 16, he says, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Verse 17, Learn to do good. Did you know that you have to learn to do good? Those of you that are parents, isn't it interesting? You didn't have to teach your children to do bad. It's just somehow they got that because they came from you. And everything that is good has to be taught and learned. And so he tells us we've got a responsibility to learn to do good, seek justice, Correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, he invites you personally right here. Now we are not in Jerusalem. We are not 2,700 years ago. We are right here, right now. The Holy Spirit, through verse 18, is inviting each individual heart in this room to come. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are... Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If, there's a condition, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat of the good of the land. 
It's quoting now from Deuteronomy. The Bible's all connected. Verse 20. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall eat, be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do you understand? He's inviting us. If you want this kind of hope, there is, an, a, there is, there is a way that has been made for you to be washed in the blood of Jesus. He says, cease to do evil. Repent of sin. Come out of that godless culture and learn to do good. How can we, whose sin as in scarlet, be made white as snow? It's the story of the gospel. Because one day, God hung his son Jesus, who was white as snow, and yet at the end of the day, his body was like crimson. As he shed his blood, Jesus became as scarlet so that you could become as white as snow. Will you come reason these things together? Are you living for something more than what politicians and bankers and educators and sports figures and entertainers can provide you? Come out of that sinful culture. Come be a part of the remnant. Wash yourselves. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. I want to invite you to stand right now. Let's respond to the Lord. He's spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Do you remember that old hymn? Most of us have sung it. What can wash away my sin? What's the answer? Nothing. Aren't you glad it didn't just stop with nothing? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart right now. And would you allow that truth just to wash over your heart? Micah and Matt are going to lead us right now. Let's sing it together. Nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sin?